All right. You listen to ATL Talks Radio, and it's number one streaming talk radio station. This is the Barrington Report. For all of those who know and for all of those who don't know, I am Barrington Martin II. You can listen to me every Thursday here on ATL Talks Radio right here um, on iHeartRadio. Excuse me. You can listen to ATL Talks on Apple, Google App, Alexa, Apple CarPlay, and, of course, www.atltalks.com. Today, in the studios, beautiful people, we have one of my most favorite Twitter accounts and people. He doesn't even know he's one of my favorite people that I read and see on the Internet on a day-to-day basis because he helps me understand that I am actually sane and I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. And I have to, without further ado, I'm going to let you guys know, um, hear who he is hear why he's here, and basically hear the wisdom that is going to be dropped on you all this entire conversation. Legal man, thank you for coming. Uh, turn down your, I'm getting feedback, turn it down, whatever you have in the background. I don't have anything running. Okay. Thank you for coming on to the show, first and foremost. You're most welcome. Glad to be here. Please tell the beautiful people um, before we get started in the conversation because we're going to talk about um, your movie Jones Plantation, but we're going to get to that towards the second half of the show. I think it's important for the beautiful people to understand um, how you came about as far as ideology and the and the mindset and the understanding of life and the understanding of our society that you've gathered over time, and I think that will perfectly segue into um, a greater understanding about Jones Plantations. Um, your writing within it, why you wrote it, and what it plans to do as far as being a beautiful piece of art that could possibly change our society and change how we view each other within this society. My brother, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, Well, first of all, I mean, Larkin wrote the original screenplay. I know that uh, um, Drew and I did a lot of rewriting when we were there for all sorts of reasons. (laughs) We have a co-writing, but... That's as far as the plant, Jones Plantation goes, but that's a small point. The, uh, you know, I, I, I used to be, I used to be a really hardcore kind of libertarian, uh, conservative. Uh, you know, I believed in all that kind of libertarian. Constitution is the greatest document, the founders, and all that stuff. For years and years and years, I believed all that, and then uh, about twenty-five years ago, you know, when the internet kind of became relatively available and actually they had started loading a bunch of stuff onto it. I just started looking around and in relatively short order figured out that uh, the whole concept of the constitution and all the other stuff wasn't true. And, you know, I'd been practicing law for a long time at that point. And now I've almost been practicing for 35 years and just pretty much everything I learned about, the law, the Constitution, the Supreme Court, the structure, uh, none of it was true. And wow. it was – the thing about it is is it's true only to the extent that if you want to make a living as a so-called lawyer in the incredibly hilarious course, then you have to use this system right. that they present. But the system itself is not – it's not really true and they don't really stick to it. And there's just so many crazy things involved in it. And so that's kind of, you know, how I developed my thing. I used to be a believer. And so that's why I know all constitutional conservative arguments backwards and forwards, because I used to be a huge promoter of it. Huge. Right. Right. And I think I I really feel like um, a lot of us who uh, see the fraud, so to speak, and that's what I like to call it because it is a fraud and it's the collective fraud that we upkeep that, pretty much maintains the fabric of society that we all engage with. But what was like the first instance, um, because you say you've been practicing law for 35 years. So what was the first instance yeah. that you encountered that when you like saw and you realized that, wait a minute, something's not right about this. This isn't, this isn't what I believed it to be. What did you, what was that moment for you? Ah, gosh, you know, I've been a troublemaker for my whole life. And, uh, but when, when it comes to law, you know, when I got into law school, I had a lot of like, they, they teach stuff and it'd be like, well, hold it. That I remember a federal procedure class and in con law, like, well, that doesn't really seem to make much sense with what's going on. And the explanation the court's giving doesn't seem very valid, but 
you know, when I'm in law school, the entire point is just you got to get try to get good grades in order to try to get a job because you're incurring all this debt. And so I remember having some conversations with professors and, uh, yeah, the answers were very inadequate, but I just dropped it. And then once I got into the actual practice and started a very large firm, huge firm, it's got anybody would know the name of the firm. I, and I was clerking there and then I started working at another large firm and I saw the way the actual day-to-day practice went. Uh, it was clear that there was a huge disconnect. I mean, just a huge disconnect. And once I left those firms and went to do, I, I left there and went and worked at the public defender's office. I took a huge pay cut because I wanted to strike cases and get some real experience instead of these large firms where it's kind of a weird fantasy world. And I was kicked out of three courts in one year wow. as a public defender because it's just so crooked. And what I saw was just like, okay, well, n- nothing they tell me about the way it works actually works. And then when I was in private practice and doing personal injury work and just getting screwed again and again by the courts, and I started realizing, well, this doesn't make any sense and that doesn't make any sense. And there's obviously a massive amount of corruption. It just it started piling up for me. And when I finally got a hold of Spooner, a buddy of mine sent me uh, a copy of his stuff. And as soon as I literally within the first five minutes of reading just the opening kind of portions of uh, Constitution, no authority, uh, no treason, I just realized, uh uh-oh, I had a sinking feeling. It's like, uh uh-oh, this guy's right. (laughs) This thing's crap. And that was from there forward, I was able to put the pieces together by reading him and knowing what my own experiences were. Okay, so I like to call myself a benevolent psychopath. And the reason I say this is because I did my homework on you. And I've been listening yep. to the quash for a minute now. And I've actually started to go back and listen <laughs> to your older episodes. And you mentioned Spooner uh-huh. you mentioned Spooner and it allowed me to um actually get a glance at Spooner and um I'm gonna, you know, by the exact book that you're talking about, but I wanted to listen to you some more. So give the beautiful people at home um, a glimpse of who Spooner is, what he wrote that you figured out, and I have a follow-up question to this. Yeah, Spooner, he was a, he was a, a an anarchist, a lawyer back in the 19th century, basically born in 1800 for all practical purposes and died in basically 1880. So he lived for 80 years, and he, he wrote a lot of famous stuff, and the stuff that's the most famous is, is No Treason, which yes. is this uh, essay he wrote in defense of Confederate soldiers who they were threatening with uh, treason charges for having so-called uh, violated some made-up oath that they never took to the government. Right. And that's where he blows the Constitution apart. But he was already relatively well-known back there and, uh, for his – he was a big abolitionist. And he was also against the war because the war was unconstitutional and the war was insane. It had very, very little to do with slavery, but he was a big abolitionist. But his other kind of great essays where he wrote a fantastic essay called uh, Trial by Jury, where he gives the entire history of that and shows how screwed up it is. And his probably his favorite essay of mine is uh, The Letter to Grover Cleveland, which has a horrible title, but is a fantastic essay that was the last thing he wrote. And he's a guy that was sort of the first case he took when he got out of law school was he sued the Massachusetts bar. <laughs> I just love the guy because right. he's, he, he cannot hold him down and he's brilliant. When you read his stuff, he uses pure logic. And so the, the old uh, phrase is that the best evidence is logic, not direct evidence, not direct testimony, but logic because you can't get around it. Once something is logically clear, there's nowhere else to go. You don't have to go gather evidence. And everybody has the ability to get a hold of logic. And so when you use the assumed facts that they present and then you use logic to destroy it, then there's nothing left of the argument. And Spooner is the king of that. And, you know, people know a few of his quotes and phrases and they float around the Internet and there's a horrible – anarchism has a terrible, terrible name because the people who uh, control it all, they don't want people understanding what anarchism is. But 
they act like it's cra- crazy chaos and lawlessness. And that's just not what it is. And Spooner was not in favor of that. He was a huge pusher of natural law. Right. And it's just something that people are totally unaware of. You don't learn anything about it in law school, not one speck about natural law. You just learn about statutory law. That's all. Absolutely. And so this is where um, I come into play in wanting to learn more about your thought processes, because um, you and I have going back and forth on Twitter, um, you know, making fun of a lot of the things that we see from like our elected officials and people and just people in general. And so my thing is, and I find this fascinating, is how is it like you, you're you're trained in law? I almost went to law school until I got around my mentors and they totally didn't make me want to be a lawyer anymore. I totally like turned it off for me, but I've always (laughs) been intrigued by the law. I've always read constitutional law books on my own. I always did these things because I've always felt and believed that if you're going to live in a land, you have to know um, the law of that land, even if you're not practicing or not, it just makes common sense to me. So my question to you is how is it that very few people are able to see the fraud and yet everybody else, the masses, they are they don't mind taking part in the fraud. What do you what is your analysis or what do you think about that? I really I, I give that a lot of thought. I wonder I've wondered about it for years. Um I, I really have changed over time. more and more I'm completely convinced that the vast majority of people, they're unreachable. Once they're brainwashed young, they can never be reached. And then there's a small portion, maybe thirty percent of the population is somewhat reachable, but you know, you're fish in water. Everywhere you go, how many fish know they're in water? It's just very, very difficult when every single thing confirms this uh, fantasy, this fraud that's going on with the constitutional laws and the government and the, you know, you know there's no defense to ignorance of the law. And get out a list of every single thing, every movie, every article, every magazine, every academic thing. Uh, every single thing confirms the fraud. And so to believe that it's not true makes you appear to be a kook. And, you know, they've done study after study that shows that people, the thing they fear the most is being thrown out of society because that just kind of is a very fundamental way that you're going to die. As a little kid, you have to have people. Otherwise you're dead. And, All sorts of psychological things are set early. And I just think it's a very small group of people who are able to, as adults, finally kind of be able to objectively look at the system that they're in and see it. And the vast majority of people, they're never going to see it. It doesn't matter how much evidence you present to them. Just like uh, Yuri Bezmanov told us. If you brainwash the people sufficiently, they become what he called demoralized. And it doesn't matter. From there forward, you can show them endless facts, and they'll never change their mind. And that's the situation now because they're always reinforced whenever they're told, whenever they bring it up. Everybody always confirms the official narrative, and nobody really understands the other. And so most people are not willing to stand out there on an island and speak the truth. And that's the thing that I've been so fascinated with, because it seems to me that there's always some type of sign or some type of hint that everything is a fraud. Like just take history, for example. We grow up being programmed and indoctrinated, but mainly programmed, and especially now because of the advancements of technology. And yet anytime we hear or we see alternate perspectives of history and I use history very loosely because I hate saying that word because honestly history is is just someone's perspective of the past and it's very exclusive to whoever is the beholder of that perspective yet when I've done my homework and I started to go back and look at specific or different aspects of history namely World War II but specifically the Civil War I see a lot of lies that have been told to us but yet have continuously been maintained not just by the record books itself, but by our elected officials. How is it that with so many unpopular perspectives um, that, that we are continuously, uh, we know about, but we reject it just because it goes against what we know, what we've been taught? How do people, I guess, um, get off the mental plantation in that respect? What do you feel about that? I think it's, I think there's probably a tremendous amount of money having been spent on dark research that we're never going to find out about uh, in in these areas. And 
I always point people to a guy that's a marketing guy named Cialdini. Um, he's on, uh, he's on YouTube everywhere. C I A L D I N I. And he's, he's a mainstream guy, but his books are fascinating and his information is fascinating because they show people, if you'll listen, how things are actually sold to people and, you know, social media fits perfectly. You, you look at social media and you say, okay, how do these phony baloney, false flag sort of bullshit narratives get started? How do they get started? How do they work? Why do people link into them and then refuse to change their mind? Well, once you take a position, um, it's really, really difficult to get people to back off from that position. And so the advantage of social media, and I think the reason why things have gotten so much worse over the last 15 years, and they have, they've completely collapsed over the last 15 years, is this social media phenomenon where an event occurs, the official narrative is put out, and it's just pumped into people's heads that there's some so-called tragedy or some other, whatever it is. It doesn't make any difference. And the people start sending out hard emojis and and, you know, best wishes and all this other nonsense. And then <clears throat> within a day or so, it starts to becoming, uh, well, obviously what actually happens really very different and maybe they weren't quite accurate. Well, the fact that people have taken a position in front of their friends and family, and now with things like LinkedIn and all this other crap, they take them in front of their, their professional community. They take a position. As soon as you do that, it's almost impossible to get someone to back down. Just think it's very difficult to get someone to apologize when they're wrong. They want to make a million excuses about why it really wasn't their fault. And, and you got all these different you know, ways of getting around it. People have that same thing. And so that's a very, very big part of it. They lock everybody into the official narrative within the first 24 hours. And there's virtue signaling, there's all sorts of stuff. And now, even the people who kind of think, well, maybe I wasn't really right about that, just like the jab and all the other crap that we saw for years, those people are very hesitant to pull back their position and lose face. And then you layer on top of that all the cognitive dissonance that comes on when you really start digging into things and you realize every single thing that's an official narrative that's in any way pushed is a complete and total lie. And for the most part, it's 180 degrees off. Right. are very close. That's why I call it the 179 Club, because it's just close to 180 degrees off from the truth as they can get. You add all those things together, and on top of that, where is the economic advantage to bucking the system? There's not. They, make, they punish the people. They punish them hugely. And so you not only do you take risks in order to tell the truth, you take risks to even express an opinion. You might be called a kook. There's absolutely no advantage to it except for having a clear conscience. And so you add all those things up and you throw in all the weak-ass people who there are in the world who are just ready to go along, right. which is the vast majority of people, and you have what, you know, what everybody observes. How much of history do you think is true? Give me an arbitrary percentage or the history that we've been taught. I guess, I guess it would depend on how we describe history. I mean, there, events occur. Uh, what the purpose, the reason, the actual outcomes were, I'd say those are like less than 1% true. The fact that events occurred, okay, I'm sure, sure some events occurred, but uh, almost none of the events are anything like what we're told. And anybody who wonders about it just can watch the present, where the, they, they tell us the things about Ukraine and what's happening with Biden and it and Trump and go down the list of all these things, they're almost always completely wrong. And, and you look at Obama's uh, presidency and you go back to Bush and you go back to um, anybody. It doesn't make any difference. You can go to Clinton, you can go to the original Bush and Reagan and you just, they're all lies. It's just, it's just all lies. And so I can know that what I've lived through is complete lies. And so my only rational conclusion is that the exact same kind of lies are being told. All these Roman history, this is hilarious. They, they actually use Caesar's sort of history and memoirs to reconstruct what supposedly went on. This is asinine. This is 
taking a man who's writing to try to improve his own political position in Rome at the time and describing the things that happened, sending him back, and now we're taking him as this kind of scraps of history of what happened. And anybody who thinks that stuff is reliable, uh, they've never been in a courtroom and seen what it takes to get some kind of testimony admissible. And this is, I go back and tell people this all the time. The vast majority of everything you hear is, is complete hearsay. Right. And hearsay is, is not admissible. And most of the time it's hearsay within hearsay within hearsay. You literally never hear anything about the so-called war in Ukraine from the government that's not complete hearsay, which means that it wouldn't even be admissible evidence in any form or fashion. The long history of human experience has determined that this information is so unreliable, yet so prejudicial and potentially prejudicial, that the jury won't even be allowed to hear it because it's very difficult for people to make that kind of separation that, okay, well, this is probably crap. It sounds uh, emotionally impactful, and therefore they, they, they hear it and they take it in. But the vast majority of stuff people get, I mean, I'm talking 99%. Everything from the State Department is hearsay, 100% hearsay. Everything from the Defense Department is 100% hearsay. You would not be able to have any of that testimony would never be allowed in court, ever. And so how much of people's opinions about current events are formed on something that's so unreliable it's not even admissible? And then you add that back to history, which is that you've got not only you have hearsay, you have hearsay that's not even in any way authenticated. You don't even know if the person wrote it. And once you read a guy like Fomenko, who just shows mathematical certainty that everything from 1400 back is completely and totally uh, a construct. There's absolutely zero, zero actual uh, information or evidence from any time prior to that. None. And all these old documents and stuff, he just goes through and blows it all up and shows there's absolutely no, there's no confirmation of that. The entire timeline for Egypt and all this, he's all made up. And he goes through it. He was just a mathematician. He wasn't a historian. He's a mathematician. And, uh, you know, once you read his stuff, you say, well, that's a whole other level of lies that's built in. And so, you know, I'm very skeptical uh, to begin with. I can observe current events and see that I'm lied to straight in my face over and over again by people on television in articles, they just tell me what I know are complete lies. And then I think, well, what about some guy supposedly writing 500 years ago, 300 years ago? What, what reliability is there for that? There's none for me. Zero. I just throw it all out. That's so crazy to me. So this, this is the dichotomy, excuse me, the conundrum that I'm in, right? Because my thing is, and I'm fairly younger than you, Yet I've been able to see this for a long time now, and I've always knew something was wrong. We can't trust the Constitution, and we can't trust people to abide by the Constitution or by by people. I mean, our leaders. We can't trust history. We can't trust our leaders. We can't trust anything coming out of the State Department, like you say. We can't trust anything um, coming from any of the branches of government. What can we trust? There's very little. I mean, honestly, it's a difficult life to have to live. Is another reason why people don't like going down this road is that, yeah, you can trust your own common sense. You can trust your own common sense and you can trust what you know, which is that people act in their own self-interest. And it was, uh, remember the movie Legends of the Falls, like 25-year-old movie or something, yes, Anthony yes. Hopkins. Classic, uh, classic movie. So yeah. really good. It's a good movie. But, you know, he comes in, one of the brothers comes in and says, oh, I'm going to you know, these men want me to run for Congress. And the uh, cynical old Anthony Hopkins goes, well, what are, they, what are they expecting from you? And he's all offended. Oh, I can't believe he said, well, yeah, that's the thing. What are they expecting? The idea that people will tell the truth, that's, that's an unrealistic expectation. People hardly even tell the truth, even in personal relationships. People are massively uh, disappointed. And so it's a very lonely road. You have to understand that what can you trust? Well, very little. You can trust your own common sense. You can listen to news. And I, I follow the news extremely, extremely thin following of the news. I get a lot of stuff sent to me. And I get to keep it up generally with stuff. But for the most part, the only thing I can know when I see a story that's out there is that I can know for a fact 
that they want me to see this story. Okay, They want this story to be in front of me. Now, that is not no information. That's a lot of information. Why would they want to? What's in the story? What kind of conclusions do they want people to draw from this? That's a lot of information. I mean, uh, if you evaluate the world and the news that comes at you, strictly from that kind of point of view, that this is what they want you to think. This is what they want people to be talking about. That's a lot of information. But how much um, sort of personal satisfaction and uh, comfort do you get from it? Almost none. Almost none. This is why so few people uh, really are able to face the very ugly situation that we're in because it is very ugly. Absolutely. And it's, it's dark. It's very dark because you, dark. Ca- you kind of, you kind of like think to yourself, like, man, like, is there any way out or in in the only way out in my opinion would be everybody to recognize the fraud. But over the last three years has taught us with the scamdemic that a lot of people were too afraid to recognize a lot of the things that went against their own common sense and went against their own instincts. Um, I listen, right. go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, it's completely true. And I don't think the only way out is that people are direct. I mean, that's why I pushed jury nullification because it really requires less than, less than 10% of the people to understand. And so we could get ourselves a decent amount of protection if we can just get that. But if we can't even get that, and I'm getting more and more convinced, we're never going to get that. But if we can't even get less than 10% of the population, then all other discussions about not fixing it, and that's all fantasy. And so for me, the answer lies in, um, you know, a more of a spiritual kind of uh, answer as opposed to a political answer is, you know, what can we actually do to fix this? The question comes up, as it always does, which is that if there's no answer, then there is no problem. Because if there's a problem, that that presupposes that there's an answer, a solution, that something's wrong that could be fixed. But if, in fact, this is the nature of human existence, then there's actually no problem. There's, the problem is you need to start accepting it or come to a different conclusion. And I've joked many, many times with my buddies for years and years and years that I probably used to be some kind of horrible prison warden or some crap like that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm paying for it now in this sort of karmic uh, retribution. I also suspect I was a huge government scammer in many, many lifetimes because I see scams all the time. And so the question is, you know, is there value in doing the right thing, even when as a actual fact with regards to the material world, there's there's no real reward. That's to me becomes the most interesting question is, well, how much is this really worth doing? You know, is it worth it to sell out for some small thing? Is it worth it to sell out for a big thing? Is it not worth it to sell out at all? You know, how much value do these people who can't catch on have? What's my obligation to them in any form or fashion? You know, those things I can see how they lead to a very dark place for the vast majority of people. And I've said for years, it's very easy to recruit on the evil side. Very easy because they have all the, they're holding all the cards. Absolutely. If you or I went out and tried to tell people, they gave us uh, an audience, some kind of, you know, that kind of independence day crap where the president's making a speech to the whole world. They're listening to radio, that crap. You think if I even gave me that, I got on there and talked to him for a while. How many people do you think I persuade in that kind of speech? Almost none. And so, you know, you face that's the reality. And so it's very easy to recruit on the bad side because you say, look, the people don't even want the truth. They don't want the truth. And I think that's probably true for the average older person. Once you get over to out of high school, most people's minds are kind of set. That's why they like the same stupid music and they wear the same stupid style. Uh, it's like, dude, that shit went out of style 30 years ago. What are you doing? And they, they think it's cool because that's kind of where their mindset got set. Mm-hmm. And I think we run into a lot of that with a huge number of people. And I happen to have a very flexible mind, and I don't wear white sneakers with a polo shirt tucked into shorts kind of shit all the time like the people from uh, the 80s. Um, but there's a lot of people who are boomers who do that crap. 
and they think it's cool. And it's like, okay, dude, it's not cool. But every generation thinks their music from high school is so great. And that's just another way, in my opinion, that it reflects out this fact that, well, what are we really dealing with here? Because when you start realizing that these kind of bad people are in charge and they have very bad intent and they want to take advantage of us and the vast majority of people want to comply and go along, uh, and are afraid to rock the boat in the slightest way. Uh, that's a bad situation for us. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. It's a bad situation. I don't sell hope to people. I don't. Well, hope is a dangerous thing. And I've, I've heard that being said a long time ago. Now, earlier, and like I said, I've listened to the Quash, um, your wonderful podcast. And um, you spoke about jury notification a lot. Explain to the good people what that is and uh, what it means ultimately. Yeah, jury nullification is the key. I'm completely convinced that, and I've looked at every kind of solution. I've heard about Bitcoin and every other thing, believe me. Um, jury nullification is very misunderstood. Jury nullification is more than just something the jury does in the jury box. It's a political tool. And that is that when you have a government like we do, with over all these different people, with so many different opinions about stuff, and the government has been given this preposterous authority, so-called, to just invent stuff. They just write stuff down, and a couple of different groups of corrupt people sign it, and then it be, somehow becomes law. They got armed uh, government men with guns who run out and enforce it. it. You or I may not agree with those laws. I don't agree with 99.9999999% of the laws they put out there. Agreed. So what say do I have? The constitutional conservatives and the liberals and our system tells us that you have to vote. You have to get a coalition together if you're in a minority in order to, to try to get more people on your side, to then get more people in the state house and get more judges on the Supreme Court. This is a hopeless task and never happened. Completely disempowering. Jury nullification, on the other hand, completely different. And that is that the system requires before any type of actual consequence can occur, that you're entitled to a jury trial, basically in civil and criminal trials. Well, in order to get that, in order to win, you have to get a unanimous decision. So if you're sitting in a jury box and you think this law is crap, no, I'm not going to agree to this. You have every right to vote not guilty or judgment for the defendant if it's a civil case. And you don't have to explain yourself. And that doesn't mean that the person gets off, but it does at least require they have to retry them because it's a hung jury. And if people understood how powerful that was and how backed up the system was and how much it relies upon extortion, blackmail, threats, a jury rigging by the government, then they would understand the power that is. Because if I've always said that, look, if the leaders in the black community really wanted to support their people, who get completely screwed on a daily basis, they'd go into those churches and they'd tell them about jury nullification. <laughs> I don't know what do. Because you go down there, go down to a jury pool and look. They try to strike all these people, but you go down and look. All you have to do is get one person on there. 12 juries, most of the time 12 member juries. There's some states that have 10. There's some very small civil cases you might get six. For the most part, it's 12 people. That's just 8% of the population. You're always going to have some black person on there in a major city. That's going to happen. And all these bogus drug laws they have, every single time they got on there, they could just vote not guilty. And that would actually stop all this abuse of the people. Now, I get it. The gangs are they're screwing things, but that stuff is all run by the CIA and the government, they want that. They want to divide the people. They want to destroy those neighborhoods. What the, if the people want power, if they want power, the power comes in a jury box because the only vote that actually counts is that not guilty vote inside the jury box. As soon as you do that, you actually impact it. If you just throw well, go into these ridiculous uh, elections and you cast a vote, what does that do? Wait a minute. Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Don't mean to cut you off. What do you, how, yeah. how dare you come on my show and talk bad about voting? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just right. kidding. I know. This is the whole thing. It's like I've done make show after show. 
proving to people the votes absolutely and completely worthless. Forget the fact that it's so watered down, that it's so watered down. They act like with 330 million people, your votes got the same values when the so-called founding documents were created and the Constitution was created. You had 3 million people, uh, six, 800,000 of them were slaves, half of them were women, almost none of the remainder could vote. Okay, so you got this little teeny tiny number of people who can vote. Now you got 330 million people in the country. Your vote has been so watered down. It's so watered down, even if it had any value. It's watered down. But it's never watered down. It can't be watered down on the jury. You can always go in there and just say, this law is crap. This prosecutor is crap. I don't believe them. I don't trust cops. Keep your mouth shut. Get on there and vote not guilty. And as soon as that started happening, that was it. That'd be it. The system would fall apart. They would never, ever be able to continue because they have uh, speedy trial laws. The witnesses would all pass out. They don't have enough uh, resources to continue to try people. It would be over very, very quickly because the vast majority of cases, in the beginning, what would happen is they would attempt to um, negotiate a plea and say they were charging the guy with some bogus felony when really it was just a shakedown like they do all the time on people. Like I said, I did criminal work for a year. I saw what they do. Um, they would shake them down. They'd offer them a deferred or some minor misdemeanor and be like, okay, is that great? Is that the best outcome? No, but it's a hell of a lot better than a felony. And the guy can walk out with deferred, meaning he doesn't even get a conviction ultimately. And you could start start the process. And as soon as that happened again, another not guilty and or another hung jury and another hung jury and another hung jury. Believe me, you get 10 hung juries in a row in any district, any district, and the DA is going to start asking questions and wonder what's going on. And as soon as that happened, you'd get press on it. People would start hearing about it and it would spread like wildfire as soon as people saw that it could actually defend them. And it could actually defend you against anything. There's nothing they can do about it except for say you no longer have a right to a jury trial. And good luck selling that one after 230 years of selling this nonsense about how the people are in charge and we're the greatest justice system. The jury is the bulwark of our system and blah, blah, blah. They're never going to be able to back off of that. They'll never be able to back off of that. Right. And I think, and I've always said that the only, I would say, uh, definite uh, arbiter of change in human society is violence. And that would promote the ultimate violence against the state. And of course, the state doesn't want that. They want people who are asleep and who don't really know about these things like jury notification. And it's so interesting right. because it's so it's so simplistic, right? It's nothing yeah. complicated at all. Look, it's a political piece. See, that's where the minorities get a say. As it is, if you're a minority, like me, every position I hold is a minority position. I don't hold a majority position in anything. And so I have zero representation. It's completely worthless for me to go to the polls. Not that I ever would because it's a complete joke. I haven't voted in 30 years or something. But the reality is it's a complete waste of my time. But the way it works is that the people have to agree. The entire purpose of the jury, the reason they supposedly wrangled this right in the Magna Carta when John was had a sword in his throat and all this other crap, uh, which is a lot of that is just kind of fanciful history. But the ultimate reality was that people understood the difference between statutory law and natural law. And statutory law is just a made up thing. It's just something that's a corrupt idea in order to give an advantage to somebody and disadvantage somebody else. But if you have a jury, if you have to have a jury, it doesn't matter what the king says the so-called law is. If the only way it gets enforced is through the people agreeing unanimously in a jury that, it's, that they agree that this type of violation, this type of conduct is criminal. Okay, well, then the people will live with that. But if you can't get agreement from even the so-called oddball coops who are the 10% like me, Okay, well, then you don't get agreement. And it doesn't matter what they write down as a so-called law. It's not a conviction. And there's no difference between that and dead letter. There's multiple ways that the law can become dead letter. Mm -hmm. First is that 
the, the cops don't even bother arresting you for it. Like, dude, we don't arrest people for this crap. We don't waste our time with it. Therefore, whatever the law is, it doesn't matter because you're not going to get arrested for it. The next one is that the so-called prosecutor discretion, which is an outrageous, hilarious, unconstitutional joke that's built into our system. The prosecutor says we're not going to prosecute, just like everybody sees with the special people who get the charges dropped and never prosecute, like Hillary, and people like you or me, we do the slightest little thing, and they throw the book at us, or people they don't like, who they threaten with all sorts of additional crap that the people never even did. And they force you to have to spend money and take a chance and roll the dice to see if you can get out of it. The last one is the jury. And the jury is the final bulwark where the people decide, no, this is not a crime. What this person did is not worthy of punishment. And on top of that, you have, you've laid our now system, this concept that if the jury finds guilty, then they must find a punishment within some range that the state has agreed to. Again, completely and totally unconstitutional nonsense. The idea that the state can just arbitrarily set these sort of penalties for what happens and that the jury doesn't get to say, no, we're not doing that. You know, yeah, we agree what the guy did. It was wrong. That's true. But he was arrested. He's gone through all this stuff. And guess what? No harm, no foul. Uh, he's, he's free to walk. <laughs> the, 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 the system's not set up like that. Three to five, five to ten, all this crap. All you can do is send them to prison. Everybody knows prison doesn't work. It yeah. just creates more prisoners. It's unconstitutional in space anyway. Under no circumstances could the state ever sentence you or me to go in and be gang raped. <laughs> it's not possible. That's unconstitutional. But everybody knows. What do they fear about going to prison? Is it because you got to go sit in a cell and be alone for a few months? No. It's because you're going to go in there, you're going to get in, insane amounts of crimes committed against you that the guards are going to encourage, the warden's going to encourage, the courts have vast sort of so-called discretion about which prison to send you to, and some of the prisons are good and some are bad. They put you in certain kinds of uh, holding cells. They put you with general population, not general population. This is such a laughable violation of everything in the Constitution with equal protection. Go down the list. This is cruel and unusual punishment. You can't sentence someone to be raped by their cellmate. That's not constitutional under any possible scrutiny. But yet, Every single person in the justice system knows that's the case. All the cops threaten you with it in order to try to extort you and blackmail you to so-called give up information where they then won't charge you with a crime, even though it's a so-called crime, to go after someone else. Again, every part of the system is so corrupt that the people have to wake up to how corrupt it is and, and come out of the brainwashing. But in all likelihood, like I said, the likelihood of it happening it's so incredibly thin, as you know. <laughs> wow, wow. That you, you said a mouthful there. And with that, I guess you can say that we truly all live on Jones Plantation. And with that being said, tell us more 100%. about this wonderful movie. Tell us about um, the philosophy behind it. I'm just going to let you like go and, and go off on it and speak about it because I'm, I cannot wait to see it. And I have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the movie, you know, it's written based on uh, Larkin short that he did like uh, 12 years ago or something, a little cartoon short. And the concept behind it is that, you know, I, I'm Mr. Jones. I'm on this plantation. My slaves are all having problems and we're afraid they're going to rise up and kill us uh, at any time. And so we hire a guy to come in and, and get our slaves under control. And the systems that are used to get them under control are the exact systems that everybody sees out in the uh, society, which is they basically kind of get, get freed and then they get to vote. And then they, they, we, we give them a kind of Joe's plantation credits, which is a big money system. And we, we show people in the movie the way the system actually worked, this concept that you're free because you can vote and all this other stuff. And we expose them to the fact that, this none of this stuff is true and that it's a big giant con and the people who are running it all just laugh at the people who are down there falling for it. And I, I think the movie has been, it's been screened a couple of times. I've gotten to see it out in Phoenix when it was played on a, a big screen and 
and the people really enjoyed. I think there's a lot of great memeable sort of stuff in it, and uh, I think the people. I think it's really entertaining. We do it in a way that, uh, you know, we try not to beat them over the head. There's a lot of dark stuff in the movie, right. but uh, we put a lot of humor in the movie as well in order to try to lighten it up. And it's really kind of the very first movie that really tells the truth about the system. It really tells the truth about the system. And, you know, people always say, well, what can we do? What can we do? Well, one of the things you can do to try to support the system uh, uh, being taken down and or at least defended against is, you know, they can kind of support these types of projects. Because if this kind of project can make money, which is completely outside of Hollywood and everything else, then we'll make more movies like it. And we we would like to make a movie about jury nullification. We don't have, this, you know, we haven't written a screenplay on it yet, but you know, a movie that kind of explains jury nullification to the public would be a great deal. And, you know, Jones Plantation is just a, uh, it's a very entertaining movie. The number one thing we did is you have to make sure that the people like the movie because it doesn't matter what the message of the movie is right. if uh, people don't enjoy the movie. And, um, you know, the first thing you have to do is make an entertaining movie. And I think we made a very entertaining movie, Andrew. Is he's done an amazing job? Who's the director and the editor, and uh, he just did. He wore a lot of hats, and he really pulled it off. That's pretty good. Now, um, I spoke about this on Twitter a couple of days ago, and the importance of art, especially in this day and age, because it seems like the art that's being made, whether it's movies, whether it's film, anything, whether it's television, even you see that a lot of the art is not based in quality, but based on either making capital, making money, or basically furthering the, an agenda. And the thing I um, liked about this movie in, as far as seeing the, uh, what do you call it, the preview of it, the, um, t- the two-minute uh, preview, oh, the, the trailer. trailer, trailer, yes, the trailer of it, yeah. is that, you know, sometimes, and especially speaking from um, growing up black in America, you see slavery movies so much and it gets tiring after a while but yet this has a perfect spin on it because as you stated it mirrors our present day society and i think that it's art it's art like this that inspires people in a couple of ways it makes people want to either uh realize what's really going on in the world and, and basically have uh different perspectives and thoughts or it promotes people to create their own art about what they see in the world. And I think that this is a great thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the thing about the movie is, that, you know, I, I was there obviously when we were making the movie and, you know, kind of rewriting the movie and things like that. And uh, and the thing about it was I, I pulled the uh, crew who shot the movie and all the different uh, people who were in the movie kind of at the end. And I was amazed at the end that, you know, it's true that you make it in this weird kind of disjointed fashion. I'd never made a movie before, but, you know, you shoot these scenes all out of order and and then they all come together much differently. But everybody had the script. And it was just fascinating to hear the kind of takeaways from it. And, and then it's the same thing at the premiere where it's like, I just, it's amazing uh, uh, the different takeaways people get from it. But there's no way to take away from it that, you know, the system is working. There's no way to take away from it that. And, you know, any way we can move it, I think you make great points, is 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 good in that people will, uh, maybe they'll make their own. Maybe they'll come up with their own, you know, another version of this kind, same kind of thing. I can tell you this much, the movie as it is, there's no way to come out of that movie um, at least not, thinking about what the movie's about. You know what I mean? There's no way you won't be, a lot of people may or may not get it, but we, uh, I think we beat them over the head with it, but you know, you never know. Um, but it, it's just like I said, the number one thing is people have to be entertained. And I really think this movie ultimately, I think it's just going to be a cult classic because it's so different. It's so crazily different than uh, any movie people uh, I've ever kind of seen the storyline is so <laughs> dark and disturbing. And that's what we need. We need, we need different things and we need quality things. So yeah. 
you're a podcaster, you're an actor, and also a lawyer. Is there anything else that you do not do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm an actor now just because I've acted. Not because I was ever an actor, but I am an actor now, apparently. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a lawyer mostly. And, you know, being a lawyer is a pretty terrible job. You made a really good decision. You need to thank your friends for keeping you out of that business. That is a terrible business. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, that's, that's kind of what I work on at this point. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Um, please uh, promote anything that you want to promote. Cause like I said, I'm already a fan and I respect everything you say. And a lot of your podcasts are very informative. So please tell the people, how can they find you? How can they listen to you and tell them where can they see uh, Jones plantation, please. Well, I hope they go to Jones Plantation. They can just go to the hashtag Jones Plantation. Now we have it. Or we can go to at Jones Plantation on uh, Twitter. The the world premiere, digital premiere, is going to be uh, next Saturday, August 5th. I hope people go in there and watch it, uh, sign up, buy that movie, go watch premiere. We're going to have a little thing before. We're going to do some Q&A after. It's going to be me and Andrew Larkin. I think there's going to be a couple other people who are going to do it. I think it – once people see the movie, I think they're going to be happy they were there and supported it early. After that, it'll be available um, you know, to purchase. After that, I know we're doing some additional showings. I hope people, uh, you know, support that movie. I really do. And, you know, as far as I go, if they want to find me, they can. I'm a legal man at U.S. Crime Review on Twitter. And uh, to the extent they want to listen to my podcast, they can. Um, you know, you never know people. I don't – I'm not a huge self-promoter right. in that area. I get it. I get it. I've just learned that, you know, most people, um, you know, everybody has to find their own truth. It doesn't matter what I tell them. If they don't, if they don't, if it doesn't, you know, resonate with them or they don't find themselves, um, it doesn't sink in. You know, it doesn't sink in. (laughs) You know, I wish it did, but um, that's just not the way things work in this plane. Absolutely, totally understand. But um, legal man, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Barrington Report. You are always welcome anytime you have something you want to say or any type of conversation that you want to have. Um, I am so appreciative of the knowledge that you dropped on um, the show and to the beautiful people that's listening on the uh, radio or the internet, excuse me, airwaves. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's always fun. Always, always. Um, Beautiful people, you're listening to ATL Talks Radio and that's number one streaming urban talk radio station. This is the Barrington Report. I really hope that you enjoyed today's show. Eagle Man dropped a lot of knowledge and please, guys, please go support his film, Jones Plantation. If you haven't watched the trailer, just Google it or YouTube it. It's going to come up and you're going to see that it's, it's very interesting and it's very captivating and it will make you want to see the movie. Remember, you can listen to me every Thursday here and ATL Talks from 7 to seven to 8, yes. Uh, you can listen to ATL Talks on Apple, Google App, Alexa, Apple CarPlay, and, of course, www.atltalks.com. Next week is going to be a fun week. I took a break off of this week from telling you the garbage news, but normally I tell you the news that's really not news, and there's a lot of things that I want to discuss with you all next week. May or may not have another guest. I will uh, keep you guys updated on social media, but please, 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 Please enjoy your weekends and remember in order for you to love yourself or excuse me, in order for you to love someone else, you have to love yourself first. You guys be safe. Do something you want. You love this weekend and just enjoy time with yourselves and your family. I will see you all next week. Peace.